0: Yes.
1: Five, four, three, two, one. Welcome to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy, a production of FlagAndBanner.com. Through storytelling and conversational interviews, this weekly radio show and podcast offers listeners an insider's view into the commonalities of successful people and the ups and downs of risk-taking. Connect with Carrie through her candid, funny, informative, and always encouraging weekly blog. And now it's time for Carrie McCoy to get all up in your business.
2: Thank you, Sun Gray. After 4 decades of running a small business called Arkansas Flag and Banner, aka flagandbanner.com, my team and I decided to create a platform for not just me, but other business owners and successful people to pay forward our experiential knowledge in a conversational way. Listening to our guests has been both educational and inspiring. The act of listening is learning. As Greek philosopher Diogenes wrote, we have two ears and one tongue so that we may listen more. I've learned that many of my guests believe in a higher power, have the heart of a teacher, and are creative at building their lives and careers. Before we start, I want to let you know if you miss any part of today's show or want to hear it again or share it. There's a way and Sun Gray will tell you how.
1: All UIYB past and present interviews are available at Up in Your Business with Carrie McCoy's YouTube channel, Facebook page, the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, flagandbanner.com's website, or wherever you get your podcasts. And by subscribing to our YouTube channel or joining flagandbanner.com's email list, you will receive notifications of that day's guest. Back to you, Carrie.
2: Thank you, Gray. For months, I've been trying to get my guest, Dr. Sybil Hampton, in the studio for an interview. Today, our schedules have finally aligned at the perfect time during Black History Month. You see, my guest's first claim to fame, and she has many, happened at the tender age of 15. Young teenager Sybil was among the second group of African-American students to integrate Central High School on the heels of the first, the Little Rock Nine. And in 1962, when she graduated, she became the first black student to have attended all high school grades at Central High School. You would think such a traumatic experience at such a young age would have soured her on any type of organized schooling. But no, Dr. Hampton has scores of higher learning degrees and has dedicated her life work to the field of education. Just to read a few of the items on her resume, Hampton was an elementary school teacher in Chicago, Illinois, an academic administrator and director of higher education opportunities at Iona College in New Rochelle, New York. In 1985, she became a manager of education and culture at the GTE Corporation in Connecticut, later worked as the assistant dean of student academic affairs at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, In 1993, she was the special assistant to the president at Southwestern University in Georgetown, Texas. Finally, in 1996, she moved back to Little Rock as president of the Winthrop Rockefeller Foundation. Needless to say, Dr. Hampton is a history maker and was inducted into the Arkansas Black Hall of Fame in 2005, of course. It is a pleasure to welcome to the table the smart, worldly, fearless, self evolved citizen extraordinaire, Dr. Sybil Hampton. <laughs> She's making faces at me the whole time. Thank you so much for coming on. I asked you why you seem like you should be retired. Are you? I am. So I asked you why you were so busy, uh, and you're just busy taking care of family and. Um, volunteering in the community and volunteering in the community i know you from the church speaking of community uh our two downtown churches mine trinity episcopal cathedral and yours bethel african methodist episcopal are sister churches and we often visit each other's services and for some reason until i read about you i thought you were maybe a preacher or a history teacher
3: no none of the above <laughs>
2: I read where you said about your church influences that I read where you credit your church, which I think has always been the same one, the Yes, Uh, You credit your church for providing a nurturing environment and social infrastructure that produced strong citizens dedicated to making life better for people of color in the community and throughout the world. And And that's where you're volunteering now.
3: I'm on the board of Mount Holly Cemetery and i co-chair the little rock scent committee for the city of little rock so that i do things at the church and certainly a lot with the bethel trinity a covenant relationship but i'm out and about in the community
2: didn't you teach a class at church that i was going to go to and i missed out on X? I
3: i did we we did a study that uh bishop curry put together looking at am i your bro- who am i my brother's keeper what does that mean well i think bishop curry um and a lot of others believe that the times are such that we need to examine whether or not we are all going to draw cl- draw closer to ourselves and our families. Are we going to take responsibility as Christians and citizens of being in and of the world and doing something about what's going on in the world?
2: In not just in
3: America, but in the world. In the world. but But in America in particular, I mean, outside of our individual churches, do we need to form communities that are broader, that are um, inclusive, that are loving, respectful, trusting, in order to build a world that is better connected, more coherent, and
2: uh, less frightening. A stronger nation.
3: A stronger nation. You're
2: always stronger together. You know, there's there's a military tactic that's been around forever to divide and conquer. It's the most simple basic military tactic that there is. And so you're you're talking about the opposite of that, That's coming right. together. That's right. Because dividing and conquering is would tear our country down. Or, or it anything is, is, is in the process of tearing our country down. It'll tear any yes. anything down That's actually. Right. A
3: family, you're right, anything.
2: hmm. I read about you as I read about you, this soft spoken woman with grit, nerves of steel. I couldn't help but think about your parents. You were born in 1944 in Springfield, Missouri, to Leslie and Lorraine Jordan. Your mother is a longtime educator. Your father was a World War II veteran who worked for the U.S. Postal Service. But you grew up in Little Rock. So how did all that come to be? Daddy was
3: in the military getting ready to ship out to um, Okinawa, and they were being trained at Fort Leonard Wood in Missouri. And uh, because mother was close enough, uh, she was able to go and live there. Um, and I was born there, and I had the opportunity of being born in the Greene County Hospital only because the military intervened and insisted that any of the uh, wives of the men who were stationed there, and he was in an all-Negro unit, uh, in and Springfield was not a very uh, open town at that time.
2: So what does that mean you got to be born in is that a white hospital or something? It was a white hospital. Oh,
3: at the time. And so my mother says said before she died in 2015 she said your whole life has been being in these places that people don't expect you to be
2: controversial places. Yes. Yes. And that's yes. nice. It's kind of like you had a destiny. Have you ever done your uh, history of your family before? Your parents? Have you ever gone back and done genealogy on your? Family? I've done
3: some. I've done some because my um, father came from um, the Wilma Monticello Warren area, and I had a grand. His grandfather owned his own barbershop there, and I'm particularly interested in researching that because he pro- that probably means that he was a, a child or a descendant of someone who was a child of a slave owner in order to, at that age, have the means to own his own business.
2: Oh, so you think he's part white? Oh, he was.
3: I I know he was part white. He was part white. He was uh, American Indian. He was extraordinarily fair, extraordinarily
2: fair. And he was was a free man?
3: Uh, Well, he would have been a free man because he was born after slavery, my great-grandfather. Oh. Yeah, yeah. But he, he had a business, a thriving business. He was always an independent business person and, and also owned land. So I'm looking to see who his uh, who he's related to.
2: Mm, that would be interesting, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah, uh, yeah. You have a lot of degrees, a master and a doctorate in education. Is that your parents' influence? Your mother was an educator. It is that I'm the third generation
3: in my family to go to college. My mother's father Hitched hike from the uh, Bio Bartholomew area down to um, Mississippi, and he was not able to get a four-year degree, but he got a two-year degree. My father hitchhiked to Little Rock from um, Wilma, Arkansas, because there was not a Rosenwald school there. He wanted to go to college, and he did not have the required credits, so he lived as a servant in the Heights and went to Dunbar High School, where he met my mother. And uh, so I would say to you that one of the things that informs me just by living and breathing in that house is being with people who made great sacrifices to be educated. My grandfather lived with us so that you know my brother and I had the opportunity to grow up and to hear adults talking about ways in which they had informed their lives and the things they had done. And so we knew that we were going to college because everybody in the family had three of the people we lived with, the adults we live with, had gone to college. This is interesting, though, Carrie. My mother, after my father finished at Philander, because that's where he wanted to go, my mother wanted to go back. Dunbar High School had a junior college, and so my mother had gone to Dunbar Junior College, but she wanted to go to Philander, too. My father decided that, as a woman, it wasn't really as important. Of course. And so that was so fascinating, uh, to, as a child, to understand that there were barriers for women. And uh, my mother succeeded in going back, but that was resistance from my father. And then she got a master's from Fayetteville. She was a gr- among that group of teachers of, of African-American teachers here in Little Rock who would go to Fayetteville in the summers in those special programs and earn master's degrees.
2: Your family's fascinating. There's not very many people that have the legacy that you have of working hard and trying hard and doing good. Uh, wasn't your father always active in civil rights? My father was a part of the
3: Arkansas Human Relations Council. Uh, my parents were active with the uh, NAACP, very active at Bethel. And of course, Bethel was the church that Ernie Green, Gloria
2: Hallmark, Melba Patillo attended, three of the Little Rock Nine. We've got to find out how, so I bet, I don't want to jump into it until after the break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Dr. Sybil Hampton, educator, consultant, and 1962 graduate of Central High School during Arkansas's not-so-favorable, tumultuous desegregation era. It's Black History Month, and who better to talk about on that subject than someone who has walked the walk of desegregation as a child and talked the talk of equality as an adult? Than our guest today, Dr.
0: Hampton. We'll be back with more Brave Stories. Before the break, we'd like for you to hear a proclamation from the House of Representatives floor when Congressman French Hill honored Sybil Hampton in the United States Congress.
4: Mr. Speaker, I rise today to recognize my friend Sybil Jordan Hampton, who was recently awarded the Alumni Award from the University of Chicago for providing leadership in advancing social justice and equity into our society. Sybil grew up in Little Rock, Arkansas, and in 1962, in the aftermath of the Little Rock 9 integration of Central High in 1957, Sybil became the first African-American student to complete her entire education at Little Rock Central High. She went on to earn her bachelor's degree from Aram State, a master's degree in elementary education from the University of Chicago, and a second master's degree and doctorate from Columbia. After working as a higher education administrator and philanthropist, Sybil returned to Little Rock to become president of the Winthrop Rockefeller Foundation, focusing on building a better Arkansas. She continues to be involved in many local community service organizations and is a life member of the Girl Scouts of America. As a local educator, civic, and community leader, Arkansas has seen an enriched place to live and work due to the outstanding accomplishments of Sybil Sybil Jordan Hampton.
1: You're listening to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy, a production of FlagAndBanner.com. Over 40 years ago, with only $400, Carrie founded Arkansas Flag and Banner. During the last four decades, the business has grown and changed along with Carrie's experience and leadership knowledge. In 1995, she launched the business website flagandbanner.com, became an early blogger in 2004, founded the nonprofit Friends of Dreamland Ballroom in 2009, began distributing a biannual publication called Brave Magazine in 2014. And today, she's branched out into this very radio show, YouTube channel, and podcast. Each week, you'll hear her engage in candid conversations with her guests about real-world experiences on a variety of businesses and topics that we hope you'll find interesting, educational, and motivational. Stay informed about upcoming guests by subscribing to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy's YouTube channel. For a complete update of happenings on the Flag and Banner campus, i.e. Dreamland Ballroom events, sneak preview of upcoming Up In Your Business guests, sales at flagandbanner.com relevant brave magazine articles and carrie's current blog post join our email list at flagandbanner.com to receive our very popular all-inclusive water cooler weekly email telling american-made stories selling american-made flags the flagandbanner.com back to you carrie
2: Thanks, Gray. You're listening to Up In Your Business with me, Carrie McCoy, and I'm speaking today with Dr. Sybil Hampton, educator, consultant, and among the second group of African-American students to integrate Central High School on the heels of the first group, the famous Little Rock Nine. Before the break, we talked about Sybil's family's legacy. It's so impressive. I mean, my mother and father didn't finish college. They were in World War II, but they were went to some college, but didn't finish. I didn't finish college, although I went to some college. You have a legacy of of higher education through three generations i'm so impressed with that so now where you are at church and some of the little rock 9 go to the same church you go to it's not very long after the 1954 brown versus board of education ruling that racial segregation in public education was not unconstitutional and the schools across america began to practice desegregation your courageous students, known as the Little Rock Nine, that you knew some of them, were the first in Arkansas. But it was in 1959 that you were recruited to be a member of the second group of pioneering black students to integrate Central High School. How did that come about? Was it your idea? Was it whose decision was it? How did y'all? What did y'all talk about around the dinner table that night when he said, Honey, I want you to be the sacrificial lamb and start going to Central High School. Were you scared?
3: Well, my father... And my mother were involved in conversations over the years from the 40s and 50s. And they were engaged in thinking about what the community needed to do. So I was already talking with my parents about whether or not my brother and I would go to Central when the Little Rock Nine began. You wanted to? Yes. Yes. First of all, I lived at Seventh and Park. So that literally my brother and I always thought that was our neighborhood school since it was at mm. 14th and Park. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that we really saw that as uh, an opportunity to go to a school in our neighborhood, but also to go to a school at that point that was ranked in the top 40 schools in the nation.
2: You were already talk- thinking your parents had already ingrained that edu- how important education was to you. Did you watch the Little Rock Nine did you get it? Did you stay out of school that day and go down there and watch the Little Rock Nine go into Central? I would never have
3: gone down there with a mob. Uh, I watched the things on TV and read lots of things in the newspaper and uh, followed it very closely over the years, so that we were not recruited. Uh, those of us who went, we were a part of people in the community who were asked, "Would anybody uh, volunteer?" And lots of young people volunteered because you had to be uh, screened there. Were intellectual testing there was psychological testing and really? and the school board kept winnowing away the number of students that they would consider sending to the school little rock used the pupil placement law in order to select between 1957 and 1971 the students who went to little, to central and hall who were african-american were Placed there by the Little Rock School Board. For 20 years. Mm -hmm. And it had to do with your grades. It had to do with grades. It had to do with uh, the perceived um, strength. You know, the psychological testing was designed to choose young people who would have the strength and presence of mind to be in a stressing and distressing situation.
2: How many people applied when you were applying? Oh, my goodness. I think
3: that may have been 20 or 30 or more young people who were in the queue.
2: Describe a psychological testing. Well, we took the Rorschach, mm-hmm. uh, and
3: we worked with the school psychologists to, you know, look at pictures, look at images, and then talk about what we thought we saw. That's what the Rorschach is, in order to get some sense of whether or not we were, I, I think that, frankly, they were looking for students who were talented but also who were nice Negroes, calm, very gracious. You know, they were looking for model. You know, people talk about model Asians, but I think they were really looking for model students uh, among the group. And so my brother and I really felt that um, along with our parents, somebody's children had to do it. My parents felt that our family was not going to be jeopardized like other families might be for losing jobs. You know, my father worked for the post office Um, my parents had a grocery store on the corner of 7th uh, and Park. Oh, Uh, they did? Yeah, they did. There was my parents' grocery store, kids' grocery store, named after my mother, who was called Kid by her father. She was raised by her single-parent father. And then on the adjacent corner was Grant's Grocery Store, which was the Anglo Grocery Store. So that 7th and Park, actually, that neighborhood, was um, half of the block was African-American, and the other half was white. So, you know, people think of Little Rock as... As being a monolith in terms of how people live, but there were these neighborhoods within the city in which there were white and black people who lived
2: in the same. Just state. went to different grocery stores, mm-hmm. but we all knew each other. So your brother applied also, and how long did it take before you found out? When did you start applying? Like in July, and then you knew. Oh no, August? not in July. That that went
3: on for maybe a, even a year. I mean, this this you know the the queue started. When they began recruiting for the Little Rock Nine, then they, you know, kept building the queue of students who would go for the other grades.
2: Because the Little Rock Nine was 1957, mm-hmm. and there was no integration into Central N-58. So that must have been when they were queuing you up, like you were saying, and look looking uh, – Testing yep. and then in 59 you started, so it made so. But well, though- what happened in 59
3: that's fascinating is that initially, when the school opened, only Collada Walls and Jefferson Thomas of the Little Rock Nine were admitted. The school board was trying to keep the group of the Little Rock Nine attending and not adding anymore, and so the uh, NAACP Legal Defense Fund got involved uh, and went back to court, and so Frank Henderson. And Sandra Johnson were admitted in the eleventh grade, and I was admitted in the tenth grade, and we came into the school uh, after school started.
2: So, out of the Little Rock Nine, there were only two that went back in fifty-eight
3: In fifty-nine. In fi- yeah, when the schools I mean, reopened in, fi-
2: in fifty-seven, out of the fifty in fifty-seven, the nine and fifty-seven, there were only two that went back yes. in fifty-eight. Yes, sorry, I said that yes. backwards. Oh, but that was—I just cannot imagine being a teenager and going to school in such a hostile environment. I could hardly go to high school in a nice environment.
3: Well, but you have to remember, Carrie, that we grew up in the segregated South. And there were many things about life outside of, thinking about desegregating a high school that were not pleasant. You had to go to the back of the bus. You had to remember that you could only go to a colored race room. You had to remember that you couldn't drink at a water fountain. You had to remember that you could never go to the lunch counter uh, in Walgreens. So there were an awful lot of things about the way you lived in the segregated South as a uh, Negro child that imposed upon you and certainly sent you uh, negative messages. So you were tough. Yeah, I would say that we were that children, not me, but just children of parents living in the segregated South, were taught from the time that we could stand up what to do so that you could be safe. And so that's how we could have been prepared to go to Central when we didn't know there would be the school desegregation, is that all of the things that our parents taught us and the things that we learned at church and Girl Scouts about how do you live safely in an environment that has all these barriers and restrictions, but also how do you live with hope and joy in expectation that the future is going to be a future in which the promises that your foremothers and forefathers in slavery never realized as democratic citizens that you might be able to be the first generation to realize that. and We were.
2: Tell us about the first day. You got up that morning. Yeah, I got up that
3: morning. Daddy stayed home work and we prayed and then Reverend Henderson came uh, because he drove us to school, Frank Henderson's father and so Sandra, Frank and I were all together. They picked me up because I lived closest to the school and we went and on the steps there were um, National Guardsmen because it was not clear what was going to happen when people learned that three more Negro students were going to enter.
2: Was there only going to be three of you that year?
3: No, there there were three more. Collada and Jeff had already entered. Yes, yeah, so there was just three so more they, um, coming that year. Okay, uh-huh. and um, we walked up the steps very quietly, and I walked into the school, and everybody was in class, so it was very quiet. And we met with Ms. Huckabee, and we met uh, the principal, greeted us, and told us that Mrs Huckabee would be our key contact, and uh, she talked with us. Let us know where our office was That she was available in case we had any Distress or needs And she took us each to our homerooms And I went to my homeroom And um, What'd they do when you walked in? People just looked at me Nobody did anything? Mm -mm. Nope, 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 nope My homeroom teacher showed me where my seat was And um, And so that what I learned That first day uh, Was that it, it was that we were going to be shunned. And so over the three years, nobody in my homeroom ever spoke to me in the three years. uh, My homeroom teacher spoke to me to let me know, or the class president spoke to me to let me know it was my turn to read the Bible. And so nothing could be more fascinating than to be in a setting where I would be a part of reading the Bible and we would say the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag and I was being uh, told very directly that I didn't matter, and so people didn't look at me, people didn't talk to me.
2: It's hard to even talk about, it, isn't it? Yes, mm-hmm. yes, yes,
3: yes. So so what I think people can't um, begin to understand is that what you saw was what happened to the Little Rock Nine, and that was a very active, um, it was in the news, people were doing all kinds of things to harass You know, the Little Rock Nine, um, that's why the troops came. That's why they had escorts in the hallway. We didn't need that. The five of us didn't need that because the um, resistance turned to shunning. Oh,
2: so no spitting in the face? Oh, I did have that.
3: Oh, I did. I did. I had the, the absolutely incredible experience of, if you've ever been in Central... There, the staircases take you all the way up. I was going up to the top floor, and there was this kid. Every day when I went past this classroom door, he would lean out and mm. glare at me. And finally, one day when he leaned out, he had been collecting saliva in his mouth the entire period. And so that he spat in my face. And I want to tell you that um, when I went to see Master Harold and the Boys, when we lived in Madison, Wisconsin, there was a spitting incident And I had never thought of how that impacted me. I burst into tears in the theater. The people around me were quite startled. And I realized that I had such an emotional response because it's such a humiliating and degrading thing
2: to have someone uh, spit on you. And you can't do anything about it? No. You've passed the test that you would not do anything about it?
3: Well, and actually, um, that wasn't the most horrifying thing, Carrie. The most horrifying thing... Was that, and when a football player kicked me on my knee that was bandaged one day, to be in a place where not one person will come to your aid, that's the most jarring thing that one can learn, is that you are truly alone in the situation and that other people don't sense your humanity. And so that that kind of disgusting thing, dangerous thing, I was at the top of a staircase and had to go down five flights of steps. Um, that nobody would reach out if I stumbled or fell. I mean, that was the thing that I learned in that setting is that whatever the students had learned at their mother's breast, it wasn't about hating me. I've never felt that I was hated. I felt that people had been taught that I didn't matter, Mm -hmm. which is different.
2: Kind of like uh, you're not human. That's right. You're not the same. You're not the same. You're not the same. You don't have the same feelings I have.
3: That's That's right. You're not the same.
2: Mm -hmm. Did you cry at night when you
3: went home? No, not at all. My parents were absolutely clear. They said, this is not something that you need to cry about. This is something that you need to gear down and understand that you have no idea what's going to happen. You have made a decision. We have made a decision as a family to support you and that you have no idea what's going to happen. But as things happen, you have to bear up. And that was very good because when I went, we talked before I went about what my goals were. And my goal was to have an excellent educational experience that would then catapult me to a fantastic higher ed experience and a fantastic life. And it did. And it did. You got scholarships.
2: Did you ever ask to quit? Did you ever say mom and dad can I just quit? Absolutely not. Not a day.
3: There was never a day in which I felt that Quitting was what I wanted to do. So you walked home every day? Never. I never walked any place again. When I, It was dangerous. That's I, I was wanted. taken to school every day. I was picked up. I never learned to drive because my parents would you not. You don't drive right now? I did learn. I didn't oh, learn to drive until I was, say, until you I was get 30. Here? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't learn to drive until I was 30. Because what? my parents would not, they were not interested in me driving because so many people would see me around the town. You know, kids. And so they didn't ever want me to be out alone. I never did anything alone. I never went on the bus again, alone. Everything that I did, I was always with my parents or my brother because that was the danger—that being clearly identifiable from the school setting, somebody might just do something. You're here. like a star. No, it's not that. It, it there's nothing glorious about it. What you are is that you're like a marked person. You know, you're like a target. You're like, oh, it was very negative, you know, to have to um, not have the kind of freedom as a teenager to kind of hang out, hang out, hang out. Right. But my parents would take me. I went to dances. I was in Girl Scouts. I was in white teens. I did things at church. I had a very vibrant life outside, but it wasn't the kind of thing of walking along the streets with my friends that I did prior to. Where did you go to dances? Uh Horaceman, mm. mm-hmm. I hung with my friends. I mean, in fact, most people that I know from Horseman don't even remember that I didn't go to Horseman because you were there all the time. I was there. I went to basketball games.
2: <laughs> I was wondering, how was your social life? So that was completely your education life, and then there was a completely different social life. because by law, we could not attend
3: any activities at Central. And we could not participate in any student organizations. Oh. By law. So it wasn't quite desegregated? It was desegregated. It wasn't integrated. There you go.
2: Your brother went there. Yep. Was he uh, also a marked child? Did you feel like it?
3: No, he had more independence uh, and he was out more. He learned to drive.
2: What year was he in there? S- 63. So I went in 62. He's he's one year younger than me. So he went in the next year and things were already getting better for him. Well, no, that's not true
3: because on the 50th anniversary of his graduation, uh, one of his classmates wrote a letter to him, and she wrote about his presenting a paper, and she said it was probably the best paper that anybody in the class wrote, but at the end nobody responded, and that all of her life she'd been haunted by the silence that he experienced and she knew that it was larger than just that one class
2: haunted by the silence i bet that made him feel wonderful and i know it made her feel better to confess she said no that it didn't make her
3: feel better she said because what she recognized is that it was too late
2: oh uh
3: and she said that it was but that she had learned a very important lesson and that was never
2: be afraid to stand up even if it's if you're this one Boy, I think a lot of people need to learn that lesson. There's a lot of bullies out there today, and it's hard to stand up to bullies. This is a great place to take a break. When we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Dr. Sybil Hampton, an outstanding citizen, as you just heard. She's an educator. We're going to learn about that. Administrator, consultant, and, as you've been hearing, a 1962 graduate of Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas. It's Black History Month, and in this next segment, we'll talk candidly about racism. It's a two-way street. We'll have Dr. Hampton give us her take on how far we've come, the work that lays ahead, and her predictions for our future.
3: The very thing that I'm concerned about doesn't really get specifically addressed, and that is... What people remember about going into the courts, I've been into all kinds of courts, traffic courts, circuit court. I've been in all kinds of places. And very often, because I've been in small communities in courts, I feel like I'm being treated like I'm in the living room of someone's home who didn't expect me to be there. (laughs) I've always thought there is a need for a type of professional development so that people who serve in these roles understand that they're the public servants. And I've been in a number of situations, having had a mother that I needed to get guardianship from, paying traffic tickets or whatever, in which I have been struck by the fact that the way that I was treated is I was interrupting somebody from doing what was really more important than having to talk to some member of the public. My... um, pitch as I move around the world and as I speak to groups is that there is something about the tone of an organization that is so important if indeed what you really want to do is to win the public trust.
0: We'll be back. President's Day was this past Monday. However, the President's Day sale continues at flagandbanner.com. Your first and last stop for star-spangled flags and apparel and all kinds of boutique goods, and a great amount of savings. Use this code and get 25% off your order from flagandbanner.com. You ready? pres 25. P-R-E-S 25. That's the code to use until the end of this coming weekend and get 25% off your order. We've got all kinds of American-made U.S. flags. Patriotic apparel, many of which you've never seen before. American bunting, patriotic home and garden supplies, American flag pennants, patriotic banners. And speaking of springtime, Easter this year falls on March 31st. Traditionally not a flag holiday, Easter has turned into one with outdoor flags and decorations becoming more and more accepted and many garden banners flying out the door every springtime. Easter's March 31st, and the President's Day sale continues until February 26th at FlagAndBanner.com.
2: You're listening to Up In Your Business with me, Carrie McCoy. I'm speaking today with Dr. Sybil Hampton, educator, consultant, and among the second group of African-American students to integrate Central High School on the heels of the first, the Little Rock Nine. We talked about your parents at the beginning of the show and how educated they are. Three generations of college graduates in higher education. Amazing. Amazing uh we talked and then in the second section we talked about your first days at central high school and at the break i was saying you know i i in learning about you i thought it's all going to be about being afraid and fearing for your life and but you said it was about being invisible i think it's kind of the way you said it and that's just something you don't really think about and this happened to you when you were 15 and you still get upset by it if you're just tuning in and you did not get to hear Miss Sybil Hampton talk about her life at Central High School. You need to go back and listen to the podcast. It's enlightening. It's it's uh, it's just stuff you never hear. It's from the heart. Um, in 1996, you went off to become an educator. Boy, did you go off to be an educator. I said earlier that you were an elementary school, started as an elementary school teacher in Chicago, Illinois, academic college administrator in New Rochelle, New York, manager of education and culture in Connecticut at the GTE Corporation, assistant dean at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, special assistant to the president of Southwestern University in Georgetown, Texas, and president to the Rockefeller Foundation focusing on education and cultural programs. And this last one that I just mentioned is when in 1996 you returned to Little Rock to serve as the president of the Winthrop Rockefeller Foundation, uh, and you were focusing on racial and social justice, as always, as you and your whole family has done forever. And uh, for you did it for 10 years as the head of the foundation, and you helped to fund a variety of educational and cultural programs throughout the state. Was it hard to make the decision to come back to Little Rock after serving, after living all over the place, working for these higher education places, and then you think, well, I'm going to go back to Little Rock where I have some deep-seated memories. Was it hard to make that decision? It was 30 years later,
3: and that gave me perspective. But the most important thing is that to become president of an incredible independent foundation, is like going through the eye of a needle. <laughs> and so that what was quite startling is that the most stunning career opportunity I had was in the town without pity. <laughs> what does that mean? The town Coming with- back to Little Rock. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so that, you know, it was it was... It was ironic, and it was totally startling. I would never have told you that I would have come back to Little Rock to do anything more than be to take care of my parents, but I would never have believed that the best job that I could ever have would be uh, in Arkansas. It was fate. It was quite ironic, uh, and it helped me to know that yeah, you can go home again. It was healing. It was healing. It was healing. But it was very challenging because I literally, people didn't know who I was because I had not been here for 30 years. I had no career experience here. And so there, I in the beginning, I would go places and <laughs> I'd show up for a meeting or something and people would be directing me someplace else. <laughs> what do you mean? Well, I mean, because I would be going places where I might be the only woman who was
2: there. In the room. The only black the woman probably
3: too well the only woman period yeah and so that you know and people would not know that the president because i had just become the president of foundation they didn't know who i was and so that was once again one of those experiences of of having to make my way and having to build relationships and trust and uh having to you know just um become a part of of the flow
2: you uh, graduated with all kinds of accolades from um from Central High School went off to college on all kinds of scholarships. Um, I had no accolades from Central
3: High School. I thought because you did. I, I thought I read you did. remember I could not belong to the honor society. I mean, I had nothing. You had some kind of accolades, maybe they were national ones. They, you know, yes, I, I got a really great scholarship, and actually, it was startling to my Parents, that my picture was in the newspaper as being one of the people in the class who got one of the best scholarships. So that wasn't. Oh, uh, you're right. You're right. Mm-hmm.
2: So, so you you decide to go into education. I think that's really interesting.
3: I didn't. I was a I was a major in English Lit, uh, and uh, and I thought I want to do something other than being a teacher because you know
2: mm-hmm.
3: people women had mm-hmm. been so limited. Nurses, um, teachers, yep. or
2: secretaries. Yep,
3: yep. And so I thought, I want to do something different. And I thought I might like to work for the Public Health Service because I'd had an, an externship with the Public Health Service. And I thought, I'd like to go and get a master's in public health. But I got married after college, and my first husband um, went to work on his Ph.D. at the University of Chicago. And I thought, hmm, and I went to work. And I thought, I don't think I'm going to graduate school, not at the University of Chicago. I ended up going to the University of Chicago, to my surprise, but also, and I'd studied to be a teacher, and I thought, whoa, 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 you should never say never.
2: Yeah, (laughs) full circle. Your mother was probably very happy since she was a teacher.
3: Well, and after coming out of Central, I had promised myself that I would never do anything that would put me in direct connection with any young people again in life. (laughs)
2: Scarred. <laughs> so, so your first husband was, got a Ph.D. Man, you're a bunch of educated people. I should be intimidated being around y'all. Um, so uh, what was his degree in? Philosophy. Ah. So I guess he that would, y'all had a lot to talk about, I'm sure. So when you worked for the Winthrop Rockefeller Foundation, describe a day there. You worked on social justice. Well,
3: economic development, education, and economic, racial, and social justice. hmm Um, One of the things that was really quite wonderful is that in the first days there with my program managers, we went around the state and just went around and visited all the communities. Because remember, I left Little Rock at a time when I had never been to Fayetteville. You wouldn't go to Harrison or Fayetteville. You know, the University of Arkansas at Fayetteville Mm -hmm. probably had its first undergraduates, with people who would have graduated in class of 62 with me. And so I had not been a lot of places, particularly in the Northern part of the state. Mm -hmm. I've not been to Lake village. And so one of the things I really wanted to do was go around the state. So we went around the state, staying in state parks and just going into communities to see what kind of work people were doing, uh, in the nonprofit sector, in the schools. And, um, It had been clear to me when I came home that probably the most endangered young people in Arkansas are really talented young people who live in small rural community and don't see people like themselves and and don't see what they can do and don't see a way out. Oh. Um, And so I wanted to get a real feel for um, Newton County. I don't even know where that is. Jasper, oh Mount Judy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really wanted to get the sense of Delta communities versus, you know, the places in the Northeast. The Hill and what, Country. Yeah, and, and what were the things that were in common for young people? Because the work uh, that we did at the foundation, the work that the foundation does, just doesn't focus on African Americans. It focuses on improving the quality of life for all Arkansans. Yes, economics. And, and also making sure that there's more justice and equity. And mm-hmm. um, so that our project... How do you do that? How do you get everybody connected? Well, you don't get everybody connected, but one of the things that good fun, a good foundation funds things that can be replicated. And a good foundation also makes grants to build capacity in communities where that capacity needs to be built. For uh-huh. instance... When we realized that this whole thing about broadband was an issue Uh in small communities, um, we wanted small communities of 10,000 or less to think about how are you going to get ready for the technology age. And so we asked people across the face of the community to sit down and to think about what would you need to do to get ready? What? Do you need to do assessments? What, what will your young people do? Well, young people set up senior nets in some communities. So it was that kind of thing, getting stimulating communities to think about the future, but also having the projects involve young people because one of the things that, that we understood is that young people might want to leave Arkansas, mm-hmm. but if you engage them before they leave in loving and supporting their communities, then they wouldn't escape as much as they would always have connections.
2: And you went there in 96. So that's right at the dot-com boom. So you're really on the cutting edge of technology and putting, uh, like you said, wireless broadband out there in the community. So what do you think are the positive things about today? We were talking about this before we went on the radio about, you know, some people think today we're in this terrible situation. And I said, and you and I were like, you know, we're not perfect, but we've come a long way.
3: I mean, I didn't even know anything about private foundations when I grew up in Little Rock, and I became the president of one. Mm -hmm. There you go. (laughs) And so, you know, when young people say to me, oh, my goodness, things have not changed, I go, that's not true. We didn't get all the way. It's a million-year journey, Mm -hmm. so that it is going to be a slog, and, you know, it's going to be difficult, but we are not in slavery. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean I I
2: I really, It's not a sprint, it's a marathon. It
3: it's a journey. I mean we're journey. not we're, we're you're not going to a destination. It is a journey uh of a million miles. I was in um Northern Ireland and I would tell you that it's so important for me to come back and say to young African American students young people in Northern Ireland don't have the hope that you have because the tension between the catholics and the protestants the fact that only 14 percent of the schools are integrated which means that they're either catholic or protestant there are very few schools in which catholics and protestants go to school together so that's a way of having this perspective on how um, the differences the way in which people with power keep down the people who don't have power uh, it's racially, it's religion, it's, you know, there are all kinds of bases of of, of what makes people hateful mm-hmm. to other people, gender, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, sexual orientation. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, the largest project we had at WRF had to do with the Japanese American internment camps. And mm-hmm. we did that because we thought, you can't just say it's a black, white thing. You really need to be able to understand that 18,000 Japanese Americans were
2: interned in two places in the Delta of Arkansas. And that was all propaganda. Started this hate about poor Japanese people. And before you know it, we're putting them on trains and busting them to the Delta of Arkansas. If anybody doesn't know that story, they need to. But people didn't know the story. I did not know that story till Ten years ago, yes. probably.
3: And and then and then the thing that's really important is that Arkansas now has all this historic tourism that allows us to tell the various stories and to connect the dots. Is
2: that because of y'all? Is that because of the work you did?
3: I think that uh, certainly every the work that we did with the Japanese American internment camps led to Senator Onoye's um, going to the National Park Service and getting the large grants that have come here to restore
0: uh, those two sites. Senator Daniel Inouye, that Sybil Hampton made reference to there, first saw the Arkansas-based Japanese internment camps when he himself was a soldier. We have an opportunity for him to tell that story of the surprise he felt when he thought he was going to visit Japanese living in Arkansas, but he realized quickly when they arrived that's not at all what these camps were. Each company received
5: an invitation from Raw, Arkansas or Jerome, Arkansas. And we had no idea that Roa, Arkansas or Jerome, Arkansas were the locations of these camps. We just assumed that they were two communities, small in size, uh, that had some Japanese living there. And they were inviting us to spend a weekend of dining on Japanese food and meeting Japanese, and, and it was a happy journey in these two-and-a-half-ton trucks from Mississippi to Arkansas. Until we turned the bend, and we looked down the valley, and we saw a large formation of barracks lined up like military barracks, and we assumed it was a military base. Well, this one had barbed wires all around with machine gun towers on the corners. And so we thought, well, we're passing a military base of some secrecy. But then the trucks turned in. And when they turned in, we could see inside and you could see men and women who looked like us. And the men and women with men who with bayoneted rifles standing by were not Japanese. They're all white Americans. And the machine gun handlers were all white Americans. And uh, it didn't take long to realize what this was. But it was an occasion that one could never forget. It was permanently imprinted in you.
0: Back to Carrie McCoy's interview with Sybil Hampton.
2: So what do we need to do next? Mm, you know, what we're doing
3: between Trinity and Bethel AME Church <laughs> is really very yeah. important example of what we need to do next. People from two different denominations, people who are from two different uh, groups, racial groups, coming together over a long period of time, to build trust Uh, worshiping together singing together doing bible studies doing studies together and just doing the kind of thing that it takes to get people to get comfortable our world is a world in which we still live separate and apart the comfort zones for most of us if we were to sit down and to write who are our closest friends? And all the characteristics of our closest friends, we would discover that
2: and for many people, it's not very
3: diverse. No, it's
2: not. Not inclusive. <laughs> Birds of a feather be flocked together. <laughs> and that's really okay as long as you're not judging all the other people. I mean, it's okay if you want to be flocked together with your people, but you can't judge other groups of people. Well, that's but, where I get really...
3: Well, the problem with flocking together and not getting to know different people is that when you need to make important policy decisions and things yeah. that that things resonate with different people in different ways and so there are nuances that you've got to be attentive to particularly if you're going to be a leader
2: yes at, at number your eq your emotional quota <laughs> yes, to be yes, a leader is yes, so yes, important yes. and you can't really know that unless you have uh, empathy and understanding of the other person, and and if you don't have relationships with people who can help you to learn, that's right. You have to make the effort. You absolutely have to. Oh, gosh, civil time has run out. I'm just sick about it. Thank you so much. <laughs> I mean, your quiet calm strength, voice of reason, all of America, maybe more than maybe they don't know it, but <laughs> they need to know it, is indebted to people and families like yours who've shown outstanding fearless citizenship. I mean, thank you so much for coming on. I have a book for you, The Dreamland Ballroom. I'll sign it for you after it's over with. Thank Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, I have enjoyed it. I'll see you at church. All right. (laughs) (laughs) All right. That does it for us. Thank you for spending time with us. We hope today you've heard or learned something that's been inspiring or enlightening and that it... Whatever it is will help you up your business, your independence, or your life. And if you haven't heard something today, you had not been listening. I'm Carrie McCoy, and I'll see you next time on Up In Your Business. Until then, be brave and keep it up.
1: You've been listening to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy. For links to resources you heard discussed on today's show, go to flagandbanner.com, select radio, and choose today's guest. If you'd like to sponsor this show or any show, contact me, Gray, at flagandbanner.com. All interviews are recorded and posted the following week. Stay informed of exciting upcoming guests by subscribing to our YouTube channel or podcasts wherever you like to listen. Carrie's goal is simple, to help you live the American dream.